morning, everyone. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration. It's great to be with you all uh, this morning. Um, whether you're visiting with us for one of the first, either the first time or one of the first few times, or whether you're a member here, we count it as a privilege to um, be in worship with you all. Um, as you heard from the passage, as Jenny Lynn said, we're in the book of First Samuel, and we are going to be there for a long time, like a year. So there's 31 chapters, and we won't even normally take as much text as we took this morning with almost a chapter and a half. Um, we'll take a, a few breaks during the year, and Advent, some other times, a vision series in the fall. Um, but we're going to be in this book for a long time. And uh, it can be confusing sometimes to look at these Old Testament books, because you don't always know, like, who are all these characters? When is this happening in the history of Israel? Um, you know, some of the Old Testament books can blend together a little bit, jumbled up in your mind. So I'm going to give a little bit of historical uh, background to where we are in the story, and then we'll jump into the passage. Um, the book of Samuel occurs sometime around 1100 BC, 1100 years before uh, Jesus. And we're at the end of a period of time called the Judges. So we recently just read the book of Judges in our uh, church reading plan, and we had Dr. Auker from Covenant Seminary come and do a Zoom call with us where he gave a lot of the history of that book and what was happening and how to read it and a lot of the historical background that could be helpful for you as we go into 1 Samuel. So if you have more interest in that beyond what I say this morning, uh, go back and look at that. It's on YouTube. You can see our time with him, and that can give you, again, uh, a, a lot more information. But I'll give a short version this morning. So the short version is this. Israel... God's covenant people uh, have been getting further and further away from God. They've continued to break his commands and his covenant with them, but despite that, God has continued to try to reach out to them by sending these judges, by sending these rulers who would come in and they would confront the people about their sin. And they would try to draw the, the people back to God. But it hasn't worked very well. It would work for these seasons of time, but then they would return back to their idolatry and, and to their rebellion against God. In fact, the judges themselves have gotten worse and worse. The nation is at war constantly with the Philistines. The judges are getting worse. The people are getting farther away from God. And so this really is a time of brokenness and barrenness for the people of Israel. I'm going to lift this mic again. It keeps falling down. It's like slowly drifting. Do you all notice that? I put it up, and it's just like slowly. Let's see if I tighten this. It's Dan's fault since he took it out of the thing. The people are, it's a time of brokenness and barrenness for the people of Israel. And so God's going to provide a final judge, Samuel. And then Samuel is going to transition Israel from a time of judges to a time of being ruled by kings. And so through this book, we're going to talk about King Saul and King David, maybe some names you're familiar with. So given that history, you would expect the book to start with Samuel, or at least to start with maybe the judge that was right before Samuel. What we don't expect is what we see in verse 1. There was a man in the hill country of Ephraim named Elkanah. So Instead of starting with someone well-known or someone famous in the history of Israel, we start with this man living in the wilderness of Israel. And then we zoom in on his family. 
And we realize by verse 2 that we aren't even going to talk about this man, Elkanah. We're immediately told that he has two wives, Hannah and Peninnah. And Peninnah has children, but Hannah does not. So right away, the author's letting us know where the tension's going to be in this story. This is a story about Hannah. And we know that because this is not the first time in the Bible where we've been told about a woman in the history of Israel who cannot have children. And always that indicates for us that God is about to do something in the life of his people. So immediately the author's pointing us at this tension. Hannah is barren and she can't have children. Now, when their names are listed, Hannah's name is listed first, which probably means that she was Elkanah's first wife. But then, the next sentence, the order's reversed. Peninnah has children, but Hannah had no children. So probably what that means is in that culture, even though it was against the commands of God, Elkanah had probably taken a second wife because Hannah didn't have children. So, We're then told that the family would go to worship at Shiloh every year, maybe some sort of uh, ceremony or festival. They would sacrifice, and then they would pass the food around to the family. And because Elkanah loved Hannah, he would give her a double portion. But Peninnah, the other wife, would use this opportunity to provoke Hannah about being barren. Look at verses 5 through 7. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. And as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. Now, I want you to imagine what it's like to be Hannah. Imagine how she must feel like with this as her daily existence. Not only is she unable to have children when she desperately wants to, her husband has now taken a second wife who can have children. She's probably around those children every day. She probably has to help care for and raise those children. On top of that, this other woman who has all of these things that she so desperately wants, is not gracious about it. She mocks Hannah for it. The text says she grievously irritates her about it. And it says this goes on year after year after year. How would you feel in that kind of daily experience? How angry do you think you would get? And remember, it was repeated twice that the Lord had closed her womb. What kind of questions would you have for God if you were Hannah? What kind of thoughts about him do you think you'd be having? How difficult would it be for Hannah to find God in the midst of that kind of brokenness and barrenness in her life? That's the question we're going to think about this morning. How do we find God in a world that's broken and barren. Where is he? And we're going to look at Hannah's two prayers for some answers because I think we're supposed to see Hannah 
as a living embodiment of the ongoing story of God's people, including us. We all live in a world of brokenness and barrenness. Now looking specifically at Hannah's story and her not being able to have a child, maybe that's the case for some of you. Or maybe it's been the case in the past. And so this really hits home with you. But even if that specific example isn't your experience or your experience in the past, I want you to think as we explore this about the places where there is barrenness in your life. About the things that you have longed for from God but haven't received. The things you've cried out to him for. About the brokenness and the barrenness that you personally have experienced in this world. And as we do that, I want us to learn together from Hannah about how to find God in those questions. Look with me at verses 10 through 15. It's another year of the family going to Shiloh. Once again, she's being mocked by Peninnah. And this time she's had enough. Now we don't know if this was her normal practice to leave the house and, and go to the temple, but she does in this instance. Deep 10 or verse 10 says that she is deeply distressed and she wept bitterly. And you can imagine her distress and her tears, right? How many years has this been going on? All we know is year after year. Her greatest enemy mocking her constantly for the very thing that she most desires. Now under those circumstances, what would you have done? Of all the suffering and the grief over and over again, year after year, what would you have done? My wife Katie and I were talking about this the other night, actually not even in relation to this sermon because I hadn't got to this point in the text yet, but we were talking about the way that we grew up and the way that we learned to deal with grief and suffering in our lives. And we recognized that many of the ways and the patterns that, that we had learned had taught us to distract ourselves from grief to move on really quickly from it as fast as we could, either to not process it or just to ignore it. One way we talk about that in our world today is we might say that we've, we learned to numb our grief in our suffering. And that's an epidemic in our culture right now. We are a culture of distraction. In the face of brokenness, we turn to our phones or our computers to entertainment things that seem, you know, not too bad on the surface. Or sometimes we even turn to things that we know are bad. Pornography, alcohol, gossip, a lust for power and money and influence. Whatever it is that we turn to, we've learned to go to these different distractions so that we don't have to experience suffering and grief. So it's difficult for us to look at this scene with Hannah to imagine her sitting there pouring herself out to God. It's hard for us to answer the question of where do we find God in the brokenness because we don't like to sit in the brokenness. We don't like to sit with grief and suffering in life. We don't want to experience it. We don't want to feel it. 
So instead we avoid it or we distract ourselves from it. But that's not what Hannah does. In all her years of grief, how many, th- how many opportunities do you think Hannah had to just shut off her heart? To disconnect from that grief, to ignore it, to avoid it, and maybe even to disconnect from God. But we need to learn from her this morning. I think if we were to ask her how she finds God in the brokenness and the barrenness, I think she would point to this story. I think she would say, I find God in the midst of all that by not avoiding the suffering and the grief, but by crying out to him in it. But that feels foreign to us. That feels wrong to us, but not to Hannah. She pours out her grief in this passage so radically and so boldly that Eli the priest looks at her and thinks that she's drunk. And she has to tell him in verse 15 and 16, I'm not drunk, I'm troubled in spirit and I'm pouring my soul out before God in my anxiety and vexation. And that's our lesson, our first lesson from Hannah this morning. In this world of brokenness and barrenness, Pour out your heart to God. Cry out to God. Pour out your grief and your suffering in front of him like Hannah does. One of my favorite things that I read in preparation for this was a a commentator who said this about the scene. He said, Hannah addresses the Lord of hosts the cosmic ruler, the sovereign of every and all power, and she assumes that the broken heart of a relatively obscure woman in the hill country of Ephraim matters to him. Our suffering and our grief matter to God because we matter. And so the challenge for us is not to numb our grief and our suffering, but to assume that it and we matter to God. To find God in this world of brokenness and barrenness, we have to cry out to him in our suffering and our grief. But we aren't done with Hannah's story yet. Now I'm going to pause for just a moment, not a pause, but just an additional thought uh, to maybe help some of you. In verses 10 to 15, Uh, Hannah cries. She makes this vow to the Lord and says that if she has a child, she'll dedicate him uh, to the Lord's service. And then in verse 17, Eli asks that the Lord would grant Hannah's request. And Hannah does get pregnant with this boy, Samuel. And some of you may have been taught either directly from this story or in similar stories that the events go like this. Hannah couldn't get pregnant. She cried out to God, and she had great faith. And because of her great faith, she got pregnant. Now, I want to say this clearly to you. Great faith is important. Our work as pastors and staff is to help you have great faith. But also hear this clearly. Great faith does not mean that you will get whatever you ask for. And when you don't get something that you have desperately cried out to the Lord for, 
it doesn't mean that you just didn't have enough faith. Some people might say, well, Jesus says that if we ask in faith, we'll get whatever we ask for. That's true. And I would also remind you that Jesus, the most faithful person that ever lived, asked his father in the Garden of Gethsemane if there was another way than death on the cross. And his father said, no. The pastor R.C. Sproul said it like this. The real prayer of faith is the prayer that trusts God no matter whether the answer is yes or no. So yes, pray boldly to God. Approach him as if he cares and hears you. Cry out to him with the things that you're longing for, that you're desperate for. But don't believe that if you just have enough faith, he'll give it to you. Or that if you're not receiving it, it's because you're not having enough faith. God is not that small. So Hannah has gotten pregnant. She brings Samuel to the temple to honor her vow to God and to dedicate him to the Lord. And she, play, she prays this beautiful and famous prayer that we see in chapter 2. We're not going to read it all. Jenny Lynn read it for us earlier. We're not even going to talk about every single verse. But I want you to notice what the focus of her prayer is. The prayer is 10 verses long. Do you know how many times she mentions the specific answer to her prayer to have a child? One time in 10 verses. Verse 5. So what's she doing the rest of the time? Well, she praises God. She says, my heart exalts in God. I rejoice in your salvation. There's none holy like the Lord. There's no rock like our God. She celebrates God's victory over evil. She says he weighs actions. He breaks the weapons of his enemies. He guards the faithful. He cuts off the wicked. He breaks his adversaries. And she also anticipates the reversal of evil that God's kingdom is going to eventually bring. She says, the hungry will have food, the barren will have children, the dead will be raised up, the poor will be rich, and the needy will be seated with princes. So what's going on in this prayer? Well, Hannah, I think, knows something that we need to learn. She knows that the answer to her specific prayer, while an amazing miracle that is worth celebrating and praising, is just one small event that points to the character of her God. That's where she finds her true joy. Her entire prayer is a recognition that God is a God who reverses human circumstances by his mighty power. He's the creator who protects his people. God kills and God brings to life, she says in verse 6. And so she knows that regardless of the outcome of this individual prayer, God's character is one that faithfully cares for his people. And that is what she takes joy in. Certainly she can and should celebrate the blessing of a child. But she knows that that is just one small miracle among the millions and millions of miracles that God performs moment by moment for his people. It's so easy for us to focus on the things that God does not answer. 
the things that he doesn't do that we long for, and forget the joy of what he is doing. And that's not an either or. Remember that our first point was to cry out to God in our grief. It is okay and right to do that. But we can't forget to also cry out in joy. So how do we find God in this world of brokenness and barrenness? Well, like Hannah, we recognize God's faithfulness to us so that we can cry out in grief, but we can also cry out in joy. Let's end with this little bit of application. We talked earlier about the tendency to numb our grief and suffering, to distract ourselves from it. And in order to do that, what many of us have done is that we've shut our hearts down to experiences of grief. But if you do that, without realizing it, you also shut your heart down to the experience of joy. You cannot numb your heart to grief without it also becoming numb to joy. So I would argue that the only way Hannah is able to cry out in joy in chapter 2 is because she cried out in grief in chapter 1. We need both of those things together. So where do you struggle with that? Do you struggle to pour your heart out in grief? Is it grief that overwhelms you? And so you instead detach or distract or numb yourself from it rather than pour it out to God? Do you struggle to pour your heart out in joy? When you do receive something from the Lord, do you lose sight of the giver for the sake of the gift? Or is your heart so numb that you can't even celebrate it? Well, there's hope for us, and that's that Hannah ends the prayer like this. She says, The Lord will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now that's strange because Israel doesn't have a king. So she's not talking about Saul or David who aren't even on the scene yet. Now the word anointed there is the first royal use of the term Messiah in the Bible. In the midst of her grief and her joy, Hannah is looking towards Jesus. She doesn't even know who he is yet. He won't be born for 1,100 years. But she knows that there is a promised Messiah who God is going to use to reverse this world. And so all of her grief and all of her joy lead her to a longing for God to raise up his king, his Messiah, and make him Lord of the world. All of her suffering, all of her joy, all the unanswered prayers and all the answered prayers have brought her to the throne of Jesus. Will you learn from Hannah this morning? Learn from her to cry out to God in the suffering and in the joy and to keep your eyes up and looking to Jesus. Let's let Hannah lead us to the cross this morning because that is the place where joy and grief came together mixed perfectly for us. Let's join her in exalting King Jesus.
Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would be like Hannah. As difficult as it is to imagine finding joy sometimes when the world is broken, as difficult as it is to remember you in the midst of joy sometimes, that's what the cross reminds us of. Help us as we come to this table to remember that. In your name we pray, amen.